Well, good morning. And welcome this morning. I'm so glad that you're with us this morning. Hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving and you had plenty of turkey naps and you're ready to hear from God's Word this morning. I love that new song. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. That was, that was incredible. As you open your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. Go ahead and open your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8 this morning as we hear from God's Word. First, I want to uh, just kind of share some context with you about what we're about to read. This is in our Fellowship of the Spirit Sword reading plan together, so you might have even picked up on a, on a few things here. 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. And if you notice, the letter, the second letter that he writes compared to the first letter is a very different tone and a very different mood. You see, Paul has been arrested again and in Rome, and he's actually expecting to die soon. We hear all this in, in this letter here. He's expected to die soon. Others, perhaps false brothers, have deserted him. He was lonely for most of his close friends were on missionary journeys and specific uh, uh, ministries. So in this letter, we see that Paul focused his interest on Timothy. And this is a personal word to a beloved friend. And Paul, although he was nearing the end of his life, was preparing Timothy to carry on the word which he worked so hard to preach. You see, Timothy was a younger colleague of Paul whom he probably met on his first missionary journey in Acts 13. And Paul frequently referred to Timothy as his son at least four or five times. And we also see that Paul lavished his unique love on Timothy when he said in Philippians 2.20, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Talking about Timothy, no one else is like him. So Paul also sent Timothy on multiple ministry assignments. And at the time of 1 Timothy, he's at the church of Ephesus. And he's still at the same task today in 2 Timothy when Paul writes this letter. So 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, we're going to read it with one another. I'm going to ask if you're able and willing to stand with me in honor of God's word. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. God's word says this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, 
Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. We thank you for your word and your goodness and the truth that's rich in this text. Father, I pray that you would be with us today and this morning do business in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives. We invite you into this room. Holy Spirit, guide us, direct us, teach us, convict us, show us what is good and what is true. Father, I pray that you would be with me as I teach. Give me clarity of words. Give me wisdom beyond my ears. And Lord, I pray as hearers of the word that we would do exactly what you want us to do and be your humble servants. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Take a seat for me. So in this rich text, we see that I want to point out just a few points here that are very meaningful to us. First, I want you to know that Paul is speaking to Timothy and he's saying, first and foremost, preach the word. Preach the word. That's my first point today as we look at God's word. Preach the word. In verses one and two, if you look back at your Bibles with me, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, what's he say? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You can hear the strong language, can't you? The strong tone and the meaningful tone of which is passing through Paul's mind and onto this paper. He says that I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. This is on Christ's authority that he's writing these words. And this is not any old wisdom passed down from a father to a son, like how to invest in Roth IRAs and when to get your oil change done and, and those meaningless things, and whether term or permanent life insurance. This is a meaningful word from Paul. And it's something that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do you feel it? Do you hear it? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it says, if Jesus is saying these things to Timothy. And what does Paul have to say? He has to say these words. What does he have to share? He has to say this. Preach the word. Preach the word. In season and out of season. In other words, at all times, in good times and bad, when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it, when people are listening to you and when people are not listening to you, when people are responding well and they're responding poorly. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Strong language that we probably don't use every day in our life. Paul is saying, urge these people in the gospel Move them, urge them, stir up in them good works and reprove them, rebuke them, exhort them and encourage them to love the word 
as you preach it, encourage them to love it and to cling to it. And although this is considered as a pastoral epistle, one of the three pastoral epistles, this message is not just for pastors. Amen? Y'all here this morning? Amen? Okay, goodness. It's not just for pastors. This is for all believers. Even Timothy, a biblical pastor, needed this reminder. And as Paul saw his time drawing near, this is what he chose to encourage Timothy in doing. We need this reminder just as much today, just as much as Timothy needed it in that moment. Preaching the word, preaching the truth, is what we were made to do. It's what we were changed to do. Preaching the truth, preaching what God has, been, what God has revealed. That is what we were made to do. And not just from a stage, but in our relationships. With the people around us. With the people that you have influence with. We were made to be light in a dark and decaying world. It's obvious to see that the world is dark and it's decaying. And God sends sinners like us change from the inside to make it new and to re reveal God's word and God's truth. But somehow, if you guys can just stay with me for a moment, somehow we've lost the importance of preaching the word today. I'm not just speaking from the stage. I'm speaking about our relationships. We fail to preach the word in our friendships because we're scared of rejection. We fail to preach the word to our spouse because it feels awkward and weird. We fail to preach the word to our coworkers because we would rather be liked by men rather than by God. We fail to preach the word to our community group because we're too busy to prioritize it. We fail to preach the word to our children because we're more concerned with them being our friends rather than being their parents. Amen. We let our children run the household because we're scared of the consequences if we cross their juvenile will. We're scared of the consequences. And let me tell you, this is not something that's hidden. This world is more confusing than it's been in any recent generation. And we can't sit, you guys hear me? You, we cannot sit idly by and watch the world's philosophies win our homes, our churches, our schools, our marriages, our sports. The world's philosophies are winning and we're losing. As a coach, I, th I think about it, winning and losing a lot. And I can see that we're losing. We're losing in the home. We're losing in our relationships. It's because God's failed. No, because of our failure. God's trying to wake us up. Church of the living God, it's time for us to wake up and preach the truth. Just as Paul told Timothy, preach the truth and fulfill your ministry. From a father to a son, Paul is saying with the utmost respect and utmost meaningfulness, he's saying, you will never regret preaching the word. But it's not only to protect against regret. You will see people changed when you preach the word. 
We're frustrated how we don't see people change. How are they not changing? Well, are we preaching the word to them? The word is powerful. The gospel goes forth and it changes lives. But yet we rely on worldly, worldly philosophies to win the day. And it's just not enough firepower. You might change a little bit, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is what changes from the inside. And it changes hearts. You might think, well, I'm always going to be this way. I'm always gonna, my, my parents were this way. My dad was this way. My mom was this way. My sisters ruined me. My brother, whatever it is. Can I tell you something? The gospel breaks generational curses. And you can be freed and you can live in the grace of Jesus Christ because of the word that can be preached to you. This is Paul saying, preach the word. He certainly knows about change, doesn't he? He knows what it means to be changed from the inside and out. Paul was a murderer. He persecuted Christians. He hated Christians. He approved of the stoning of Christians, and yet God got a hold of him. And it was Paul's mission to preach the word. And it was also his mission to encourage other people to preach the word. You want to see people changed? You want to see yourself changed? You read the word, you preach the word, and it will change you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure of it. When you decide to get married, you obviously are forever taking on a life companion. But maybe what you didn't realize is that when you also decide to get married, you're taking on a lifelong roommate for the rest of your days. And as you experience life together and take up residency with one another, you start to find out that this person indwelt in your home has forever changed the way that you live your life. In some ways, you didn't know you were living it wrong. I was writing this last night and Liz was looking over my shoulder, so I'm nervous right now. But things like this. Music can be on, but not too loud. You no longer get the full bed, just a sliver. And women, tell me if this is true, you will find yourself constantly picking up clothes right next to the hamper, but never in the hamper. We, you will always be filling up your spouse's water bottle, but only when you get comfortable and sit on the couch and then you're asked to fill up water. You never knew that toilet paper was put on the thing the wrong way, over the top or under the bottom. You never knew that before, marriage. You may even learn how to chew food the proper way. And your Saturdays might change. Instead of football Saturdays, you got to get some projects done before you can enjoy some football. The point is, marriage causes you to make some adjustments in your life. Is this right? It causes you to make some adjustments. And even if you're not married, you know this is true even with roommates. You have to make some adjustments. But Christ is not some imperfect roommate, right? He's not just like living with a roommate where you guys compromise over things. When Christ takes residency in your heart, he totally upends your way of living. He will change everything. Not just suggest things. Christ has his way, 
and he will upend your heart when he takes up residency in your life. Colossians 3.16 says this. You might know it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so I have a question for you this morning. Does the word of Christ have a home in your heart? Does he? Does Christ have a home in your heart? And have you allowed Christ to change your heart so much that it looks like Christ himself is dwelling richly in your soul? Because that's where true change comes from, right? True change comes from the inside. If we look at a tree, a dead tree, or a dying tree, and we staple fruit onto that tree, how long will that fruit last? Not very long. It might look pretty for a bit. It's going to get sour and rotten. The fruit will fall. But if we water and change that tree from the inside, from the roots, beautiful fruit will show. And Jesus desires to do this with your heart. When he takes up residency in your soul, through your faith, he changes you forever. And in Colossians, this is a corporate command. This is not just for any one person. This is for the church. So at Bethel, at Bethel, I desire to see Christ richly dwell in these walls and in these halls and from the stage and from our community groups, on our mission trips, in our homes, in our marriages, but most of all, in our hearts. I desire Christ to change each and every one of us. And there's still a little stubborn roommate in us all where we think that we're right and we think we know the way, but Christ is the way. And he will change you forever. And he will continually change you. So step aside and stop being the stubborn roommate and let Christ rule in your hearts and let him shape the way you preach the word of truth to those around you. Amen? Amen? My second point today is this. Not only should we preach the word, but we should trust the word. We should trust the word. Not just preach it, but trust it. Verses 3 through 5 say this. We'll look down at your Bibles with me. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Tell me if this sounds familiar. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, I love this, Paul's saying, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. There is a deep temptation in all of us to abandon God's truth. There's a deep temptation in us with the sin that's indwelt in our heart to abandon what God is saying and to not believe it. None of us are exempt from this temptation. Hear me saying temptation, okay? There's temptation, there's doubts, but why can we trust what Paul is saying? Look with me to 2 Timothy 3.16 
the verses before he actually writes this passage. You guys might know it here. All scripture is breathed out by who? God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may, get, may be complete and equipped for every good work. You see, all scripture is not from Paul, not from the writers of the Bible, it's from God himself. We believe that. As Christians, we believe that this is the holy word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when we read these words, we're not just reading a letter from our grandpa, we're reading the heart of God. And the heart of God is being revealed to us in this way. It's the very heart of God that we get to read, that we get to see, and that we get to understand, and that we get to dive into. So God's word is trustworthy. And in this, Paul is laying out a situation or dangers that Timothy will see in his church and people that he will lead. And as Paul is warning Timothy and giving him a heads up of how people will respond when he preaches the word and fulfills his ministry, I want to give us, the church, a warning as well as we think about this verse as it pertains to what it means for you in this day. Paul is laying out what it looks like to abandon truth and chase after the world. It may look familiar to you because maybe you know others who have fallen into this specific sin cycle. Maybe you've been tempted by this specific sin cycle. You see, Paul is saying people get tired of hearing sound teaching. They don't endure. Is that interesting? They get tired of sound teaching and they don't endure. And having an itch in their ears, some versions actually say this, wanting their ears to be tickled, they accumulate for themselves teachers. They start surrounding themselves with teachers to agree and to scratch that itch. To agree with them. It's no longer about what the word says. It's about finding people to agree what I think. They wander off into myths and turn away from listening to the truth. The mistake that we make is that we can think that we're immune to such thinking. That we're past that. That we've got it all figured out. And Paul reminds us, in the first few verses, to be grounded in God's word and then to be, be aware of this danger. Here's some myths that you may have struggled with or that you may have heard. You know, sometimes PT makes you raise your hand. I won't make you uh, raise your hand for this, so don't worry about that. Here's some myths. God accepts everyone. God must not love me if he allowed blank to happen. My preference in worship music is the correct one. I love the church, just don't like the people. They don't have anything for me at this church. Divorce will solve my problems. 
If I could, if I could only have blank, then I'll be happy. It's my retirement. I can do what I want. I can spend my money how I want to, spend my time how I want to. And my children will love the Lord if I just take them to church every week. Those are a few myths that we start to believe. And how do we know that we believe them? Because we've seen people act on those things. Haven't we? Some of those have struck a chord even with our own heart, but even in the lives around us. We've all been affected and seeing those things play out. So this might sound dramatic to say a word like divorce, but it's not. Because to turn away from the truth and to wander into myths, it starts somewhere. And that belief, we start getting tired of the sound teaching and the sound doctrine And we just get tired and we don't endure. And we start chasing after myths. And it starts small. And the major danger that we see in this passage is that your faith, if you decide to turn away from the truth, will begin to dwindle until it proves itself as an empty apostate faith, as if your faith was never there at all. You see, if you're surrounded by people who never challenge you, never correct you, never point you to scripture, sounds like, like a community group, doesn't it? Then you're living in this danger. If somebody's not correcting you with the word of God, challenging you with the word of God, if you're not praying with one another, then you're living in the danger of wandering off into myths because you're not grounded in the word of God. And as people correct you with God's word, I want you and God wants you to repent right away as people correct you in the word of God. Repent right away and walk in his grace. Walk in his goodness and walk in his grace. Repent. You know, coming out of the pandemic, I know you guys are pandemicked out, but hang in with me here. here. I promise I'll stay out of the politics. Maybe. Coming out of the pandemic, there's one thing I think we've all experienced. Some mistrust. There's some mistrust in our culture. These are simply observations, like I said, through misinformation, through it's hard to know what's true. You guys remember this, don't you? It's hard to know what's true. What information should I believe? And all of a sudden, tribal lines were formed. Tribal lines were formed, and people started accumulating for themselves information that would adhere to their thinking, that would agree with what they believe with. All of this produced some mistrust in our government. Our government lied. Big Pharma was hard to trust. It was hard to trust people. I don't know about you, but when I used to go to the doctor, I just like did whatever he said. And now I like play 20 questions when I'm in there. Like what? You know, just making sure that we're on the same page here. And there was some mistrust. And we all experienced that. But the word of God is trustworthy. Everybody started to do this thing where they, they started to surround themselves with teaching to adhere to their own ideas and their own opinions. 
But I'm telling you, it happens in our church today. It happens in our church that we live, we live as if we don't trust the words that we're reading. We hear the word of God. We sing the word of God. We read the word of God. But yet it's like we mistrust it because we're not living by it as we should. And we come up with our own ideas. And what do we do? We come up with our own ideas. We come up with our own, our own truth. And we come up, come up with our own quick fixes to life, some things that we think will fix our life. And if the church dis disagrees, we will be on a never-ending search to find people that will agree with us. Well, if, church, if this church doesn't agree with what I say because of what God's Word says, I'm going to go to another church. I'm going to go to another church. Or if this group of people does not agree with what I say, I'm going to find this group of people. And we're, if we're challenged by God's word, we deny it and we suppress the truth and we continue to chase after our own plans and our own desires. God forgive us. Paul uses this word desires. I love this word in the Bible, desires. It's a deeper word than just behavior. It comes from the heart. Paul is saying that people from their heart will turn away from the truth and wander into myths. And they will suppress the truth. Since it's so deep in our heart, it's going to take some deep repentance. And it's going to take some deep trust in his word and who God is. And for that, we need to ask God to forgive us. And ask God to guide us so that we would be safe from wandering into myths but we would never turn away from the word. Can I share something with you? You can never out God's grace. You can never out God's grace. No matter how far you've wandered, no matter how far you've traveled in the wrong direction, no matter what you've done. You say, Drew, you don't know what I've done. You're, you're right, I don't, but God knows. And he will forgive you. He will forgive you. His grace is deep enough. It is plentiful enough. He has resources more than you could ever imagine. And when you go to him in forgiveness, he grants you faith. You proclaim faith and you will live with him forever. And by the way, this danger is probably more even real to us today than 2,000 years ago, where it is easier than ever to accumulate for yourself teachers to agree with your own desires. Am I right about that? If you got an idea and you think it's good, you can find a YouTube channel, you can find a podcast, you can find an article, you can find a book, you can find a friend group, you can call a friend, you can text a friend. You can find people to agree with you. But if it's not from God's word, it's meaningless. So as we hear God's word, trust it and obey. This is a good opportunity for us to look at our lives and ask if there are any myths that you're falling into. What myths are you prone to chase after? And what is hard to read in the Bible? Now, I'm not talking academically like sentence structure, what's hard to read. I'm talking about what's hard to trust. When you come across something in the word, what's hard to trust? Like, wow, I don't, I, I don't believe that. 
That would really make a big change in my life for me to believe that. What's hard to trust? Ask yourself those questions. You see, we can have questions, but we want to bring them to God and his people. We don't just let our questions stay silent. We bring them to God and his people. And we search the word of God high and low for answers. And I will tell you that God will minister to you in your doubt. And in your questions, he will minister to you. He may not find, you know, you might, might not find the perfect answer to your question, but you will find trust in him. You will find love for Jesus. And your doubt will pass away and your faith in him will evermore increase. My third point today, as we're moving along here, is this. Live out the word. Not only preach the word, not only trust the word, but live out the word. Paul turns his attention to Timothy himself. A personal message to Timothy. And he says this in verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As a man who has entered his last days and knows that his days on this earth are coming to an end, Paul wants to give Timothy some much-needed encouragement. Who needs some encouragement today? Okay, y'all got it figured out. I guess you don't need encouragement. Fantastic. He tells him to be sober-minded, right? To endure suffering and to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill your ministry. Because why? Because what? Why is that so important? What is your reward? Paul tells Timothy that the crown of righteousness is laid up for you and will be awarded to you. It's waiting for you. We need that encouragement today. This life under our own power and our own will will wear you down. If you are not focused on Christ and his riches and his goodness and the gospel of Jesus, this life will wear you down. Relationships are hard. Money is tight. Your job is tough. Look to Christ and his riches. Look to him. Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and I have kept the faith. This is kind of interesting for someone. It sounds kind of conceited, but I promise Paul is not coming out of a place of conceit here. He's coming out of a place of personal testimony. He's telling Timothy, it's worth it. It's all going to be worth it. As an older man to a young pastor, he's saying it's worth it. Don't stop. Fight the good fight. You can't control the way people respond to you. You can't control your circumstances, but you can control the way you fight and the way that you trust and the way that you keep your faith. 
And Paul, even in hard circumstances, is looking towards future glory and letting that drive him into his final days. You know, Jovi is five years old, little kindergartner. Her calendar system is not the best. She doesn't super understand what day it is, what the next day will be. She does sometimes. But especially far out things. And I guarantee I will hear from now until Christmas about 150 times. How many naps until until Christmas? How many sleeps until Christmas, Dad? How many sleeps? How many naps? She is looking forward to that day. She doesn't know how many days. She doesn't know when it is. I'll answer her every time and she'll go, wow, that's a lot of days. She doesn't really understand how far it is, but she's looking forward to the day where she can pitter-patter down that hallway and see the gifts that her father and mother have bought on Amazon. (laughs) But really that her mom bought and I'll also see them for the first time as well. That she's looking forward to that day, to the gift, the reward, because we love her. That's what we try to tell her. We give these to you because we love you. We want these as a gift of love to you. And she comes down that hallway and she's so excited and she's looking forward to everything that's under the tree. And she's so thankful. And she scarfs down breakfast so she can open them right away. We have Jesus as our gift. Jesus is not only our gift in future glory, but I think we miss this. Hear me. I think we miss this. Jesus is our gift now. We have Jesus. We totally miss out on the connection that we have with Jesus now to change and to guide the way that we're living. We have him now. And the mystery of the gospel is this, that what you experience now, connected and united to Jesus through faith, you experience all the more a thousand times over in glory. Are you able to look ahead to future judgment and have confidence in your Savior to accept you? Paul talks about that day is coming. That day is coming. And Paul is confident that he will be accepted by Jesus because of what Jesus has done. You see, if you try to work for your own salvation to please God, it is futile. It's meaningless. It will mean nothing. Because the sin that you have already discounts you and disqualifies you for eternal life with God. What will qualify you is the blood of a perfect sacrifice. The blood of Jesus. That's what qualifies you. And this great exchange takes place when you believe and put your faith in Jesus. Which, like again, Christians, don't miss this. I'm saying, even after you believed, don't miss this truth. That when you believe in Jesus... Your sin has been laid on Jesus and the work's been finished. And now the righteousness of Jesus is placed on you and you are wrapped in his righteousness, clothed in his righteousness forevermore. And that qualifies you more than enough for eternal life with Jesus in heaven. You see, Jesus finished the work and this crown of righteousness is waiting for you through faith. 
How do I receive this kind of righteousness? You receive it through faith. You turn from your sins. You recognize your need for a savior. You turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus in the finished work on the cross. And he will save you. The king of kings has a crown waiting for you. So don't give up. Don't give up. People of God, fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Don't give up. Paul's saying it's all worth it. The gospel of Jesus is worth it. This is the gospel. And it's not just for people to become Christians. It's for Christians to cling to. So don't, don't hear me that this is an invitation just for people who don't believe. This is for Christians and non-Christians. Believe in the gospel. Cling to the truth. Cling to the word of God. And you will start to kill sin in your life. Sin will taste bitter to you. It won't be as fun. Sin will be bitter and the grace of Jesus will be all the more sweeter. You'll be changed. And you'll have to, you, you'll start to live with joy. So Christians and non-Christians, receive his grace new today. And if you haven't received the gift of salvation, I pray that you'd receive it today by you proclaiming faith in Jesus. If you want to know more about what it means to believe in Jesus, we have our next steps area in the back after service. You can also talk with me after the service. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. And in your presence, just as Paul wrote, in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts even now. Work through your word. Work through the singing of your word. Work through this worship time together. I pray, Lord, that you would change us. Change us to love your son even more. Change us to cling to your word. Change us to be on mission. Change us to love you and to love others. Father, I pray if there's someone in here tonight who does not know you, Lord, they're, they, they're lost. They don't know the grace of Jesus that we speak of. Lord, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would work in them and that you would spring new life in their heart. Father, we give this time to you. We give this worship to you. May it be a pleasing sound to your ear and may we sing from our souls. It's in your name we pray, amen.